Hey, everybody, and welcome back to this little hand-in-hand, or shall I say, ear-and-ear, walk down the plucking up memory lane as we take a break in between our seasons. Y'all, so the first week we did our first ever episode with Liz Gilbert, and this week we are doing our second (laughs) ever episode. And listen, I promise you we are not re-airing all 104 episodes of Plucking Up, but it just so happens that the second episode we ever recorded of this show was with a guest named Joe Saxton, and it was an instant listener favorite. I went back to re-listen to this episode today in order to record this VO, and I have to tell you, I remembered like 95% of the episode, and it was years ago. There are just some stories and some lessons and some concepts that were so powerful for me that I have in my own personal and professional life recalled over the years. And so if you are someone who struggles with kind of owning and properly valuing your story and your voice, if you are in the midst of a really hard season where it just feels like things are falling apart, if you are asking a really big and scary question around, should I stay? Should I go? Y'all, this episode is for you. Joe was so generous, so authentic, so honest, and so wise, and I'm so grateful for her friendship and for her words. So I hope you enjoy today's episode as much as I did. Without further ado, Joe Saxton. You're listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders about their pluck-ups. Our guests will share their sometimes never-before-told mistakes, rejections, wrong turns, and more difficult seasons, but also how they moved on and up to keep creating and inspiring others to build a life of purpose, passion, and impact. I'm your host, Liz Bohannon. I cannot be more excited to share this conversation with my friend Joe. Listen, Joe Saxton has written best selling books runs a thriving leadership development company. She's spoken on some of the largest stages in the entire world. But in this episode, she takes us back to a time in her career that was really well plucked up. She is so vulnerable and honest with us about this hard season, about how dark it got, and about how she overcame it. I truly hope that if you are in a season where it just feels like everything is going wrong and everything is against you, that Joe's energy and wisdom and experience gives you that nudge of encouragement you need to break your stuck cycle and get back to building a life of purpose, passion, and impact. Also, one last thing, in a very on-brand way, I had my own technical pluck-up in the recording of this interview, so it does sound a little bit different. But please, it's so good. I urge you to listen with open hearts, even though it's not quite as easy on the ears as it usually is. But let's get going. Joe, I am so 
excited to have you on the show. I love that when I get to have, I'm like preparing for this and going like, oh, I just, I get to hang out with Joe. And um, it's nice that other people are going to get to hear from her too. But then oh. is, I get to hang out with Joe today. So thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Always good to hang. So tell us a little bit about the Joe story. Tell us about where did you grow up and how did that kind of on a high level lead you to where you are today? Yeah, I am. I was born in London, in England, to Nigerian parents who'd moved to England in the 60s. And my mum still lives there now. And a number of my family live there now. Um, So yeah, I grew up in London in an inner city part of London, which has since been gentrified and is a very different looking place. I have mixed feelings. I don't know. I mean, I remember someone saying to me, they felt I'd had nine lives, which I don't know whether that's really the case. I think we just, you know, we kind of evolve as time goes on. Um, I live in the States now. I moved to the States when I was 30. And I guess like everybody have worn a lot of hats over the years with different things. You're trying to work out who you are and what you're about and what you bring to the table. And so, um, I went into church work in my, I wanted to be a journalist, actually. That's what I wanted to be. Wanted to be a journalist, wanted to either read the news or be a features kind of editor type person, like do the exposés. I want to be the expose about some big criminal activity. Anyway, somehow. Definitely also have the voice for it. Like when I was younger, I also wanted to be like an investigative journalist. Mm -hmm. I had this alter ego. My name's Elizabeth Ashley. And I would always use an English accent. (laughs) Elizabeth Ashley reporting live from Baghdad. That's actually quite good. (laughs) I've got to say you are up there in the top English accents I've heard Americans do. Because there's some really bad ones out there. And I'm always amazed by the boldness with which someone will talk to me with an English accent and then ask how they are. And I'm like, how do I tell you how to... I have to tell them because some of them are terrible. They're like, does that sound right? I'm like, no, it doesn't. It's so good. And also it's going to go, I kid you not, maybe highest three compliments. (laughs) You know? So anyway, that being said, I feel like you would have been a great investigative reporter, hard-hitting news. So you wanted to do that. I wanted to do that, but I think I knew that writing would always be part of my story. I just wanted to probably do something more in the hands-on in the community. Um, so after college, I ended up working for a church. I was a youth pastor for a while, a college-age pastor for a while. And, um, and I think just kind of reckoned with the idea of what leadership would look like for me for a long time. I wasn't sure whether it was something I wanted. It just was something that always ended up happening. I remember sitting a colleague down and saying, what is wrong with people? <laughs> I always have people on either side. I'm in the middle and I have to fix it. What is going on? And he shrugged his shoulder and said, it might be a gift. And then he laughed and walked off. <laughs> he said, Lucky you. Um, and then moved to the States, worked with a nonprofit for a number of years that worked alongside churches. And I think just over time, I'm like you. I don't know that I ever necessarily felt I had a passion for X, Y, Z. I think different things, I would respond to things happening in the world around me and just think something needs to happen about that or something needs to happen about that. And I think the consistent thing, even from my teens when I was captain in sports teams or working with things in my classroom and in my grade was always leadership. It's always been about leadership for me. That took me a long time to embrace and say, what I do is empower leaders wherever they are in every sphere of life. In retrospect, what were the things that kept you from being able, you think, to name that or identify that earlier? Were there messages that you feel like you were hearing or listening to that made you feel like, no, that's not a thing or that's not a thing I do? I think there was a lot of who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to tell other, other people what to do? And I think I've probably only realized this in the last year. I think in the last year, I've realized the value of my story 
in a different kind of way when it comes to leadership. I've often, you know, people have shared the value of my story in terms of, oh yeah, someone getting through hard times. I haven't actually thought about it in the context of these tools I have as an immigrant daughter and now as an immigrant in the States actually will help you lead in business, in your community, because those weren't the stories that were always celebrated. And so because they weren't always the stories that were celebrated or even known, I thought, well, I need to know something like that. And yet I kept on finding having people coming towards me saying, fix my life. That's so interesting to hear you say, I heard people hear my story and say, that's valuable in the sense that it's like inspiring, but the shift when you said, yeah, yeah, it's, it's inspiring and it's nice. Also, it's going to drive huge value. Yeah. And that's a really mm-hmm. significant shift. But the other thing that was really interesting to hear you say is that that happened in the last year. So yeah. for those who don't know, Joe at this point in her career, like you really are, you are a leader of leaders. Yeah. Leadership, coaching platform, you've written multiple books. I met you in person for the first time when we both spoke at the Global Leadership Summit. Yeah. So I saw you for the first time live on stage. Yeah. Leading over, I don't even want the, know what the number I mean, is. 400 yeah. billion people. And- <laughs> <laughs> Let's make it bigger. <laughs> For our resume. Do a fact check on this, but we're just gonna go with it. Some absurd amount. So it would be very, very easy to look at Joe Saxton and your like amazing tailored pink blazer on stage. Good choice, man. It was a good choice. You looked fantastic. It was was coffee. It was strong. It was good. But it would be easy to look at you and just say, like, oh, obviously she has it all figured out. And then to hear you say, oh, actually it was really in this last year that that really significant shift happened in how you viewed your story. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I think it was. I kept on finding myself in the middle of crisis, going back to when I was a kid and thinking, how did we get through it then? Hmm. And it kind of caught up with me and I'd be telling stories and things and, and almost breaking it down, like breaking down the choices that were made the feelings that were felt, the resilience that was built and, and thinking, I keep on coming back to this. I don't go back to the times which were happy. I don't go back to the times when I had no connections. I go back to the times when I had nothing, where I wasn't seen as anything. Or I'd find myself feeling something and remember and thinking, when did I feel that last? It's like an echo. Yeah. And it would be, or how did we do this network? And I thought, oh no, I'm in an immigrant family, which believes in extended family. Actually what they did was, and I think about how my aunts functioned and think about all those things. And it, was one of, it wasn't one of those fake it till you make it moments. It was almost like a decided. I'm mm. like, you know what? This story works. Mm. This story works. If you're coming to me asking for help, this is all I've got. Why am I pretending to go with something else? This story works. And so this is the story I'm telling. And I'm going to tell it in its fullness. And I'm going to tell it. It's not even I'm going to tell it unashamed or unembarrassed. Because I don't think I was ashamed or embarrassed. I just hadn't kind of integrated yep. it all. Yeah. And so I think I, it was just like, even when we were at Global Leadership Summit together, it was just like, well, I'm going to tell you about my world and it's going to help you. Mm-hmm. And that's that. Because that's what you've got me here for. <laughs> and so I'm like, I didn't, I didn't arrive here with a different story. So why am I trying to find one now? Yes. yes. Oh my gosh. I identify with that so much. I had a really similar moment where I was just like, my story is what it is. And if the narrative, same with you, is I found myself as a leader constantly going back to the same narrative and finding 
same handful of principles, yeah. if I could get back to them, just kept working for me. They kept yes. being able to move me through the next challenge, the next embarrassment, the next disappointment. And I could somehow own like, this is awesome. It works really well for me. Yeah. And you're fine with that. And then the moment you are like, oh, I'm going to put this out in the universe for other people, then at least for me, all of these insecurities. Yeah. You know, like I need to change it or make it fancier or make it different or add in other perspectives of different leaders. And it's just like, but you're not other people. Yeah. Do the thing that you know. Lead from what you know, write from what you know, tell stories from what you know. And and the ability to move people and the ability for people to connect with that, like see what happens then. Yeah. The other thing that you just said that makes me feel like we should have an entirely different podcast about it <laughs> is when you referenced your childhood in, in the hard parts of your childhood and how you kept going back to that and going back to when there was struggle. And it seems like what maybe worked so well for you is that you experienced intense struggle, but then you also had a community around you, it sounds like that helped support you through that struggle, but it doesn't sound like rescue you out of that struggle. Uh, no, that's true. And, and you know, like when, as you're older, you see your past a bit like a prism and the light hits certain things at certain times in your life. And I think what I'm looking at this stage, I look back at my mum and my aunts in their forties because I'm in my forties and I look back at the struggles that they were. And I just thought, Ooh, I, I think, I think I look back on it and see a cultural moment in England where there was rioting in not far, about two, three miles from our house due to the kind of the eruption of this thing which was bubbling, bubbling for years, systemic injustice, poverty, police brutality, all of these things and seeing the weariness on these women. And I didn't recognize it as weariness in the, at the time, but I look and think, oh, okay. And actually just talking with my mom about it a couple of days ago and thinking that these are people who have worked and struggled and have dealt with, in the 60s in particular, incredible amounts of racism, incredible amounts of misunderstanding, incredible amounts of cultural change and feeling like a fish out of water and yet carrying on and carrying on and carrying on. And so I think it was watching how they succeeded watching how they shaped their lives watching their wounds watching the price they paid and growing up in that you know at that point you know it's the 80s we don't have the internet in that sense but you have these tabloids and these slogans about immigrants were stealing our jobs and stealing our this and that and the other well i was their child do you know what i mean i was the immigrant child and just because i was a kid didn't mean i wasn't affected by it so i think in that moment it's just seeing this kind of almost this shaming on our very presence and yet are existing regardless of it. And yeah, I think at this moment, I'm just looking at it in more detail mm. and listening to it all over again and observing mm. the feelings and the uncertainties and the goals and all of those things that came out at that time. Has that affected your parenting? I'm curious, because now you have two little girls and to yeah. some degree, there is injustice and shame and things you can't protect your kids yeah. from. I know yeah. in your book, uh, you shared about your daughter who gave a speech at her graduation and about this moment where she went to check the box for, you know, what her race was. And there was like, there was no box that represented, a, you know, a biracial child. And you as her yeah. mom can't protect your kids from certain things. However, you've built a life of success and a degree of privilege. And so you probably do have some choices about 
things that you can shield your children from. How does your background growing up with a lot of struggle and being now in this adult life, speak to me about how that has changed your parenting? I mean, I think it's bizarre because it can be jarring. It can be jarring to see the world which we have worked towards and built for our kids and then think, is this going to prepare you? I think there is an element to which for, again, it's an immigrant mother who is learning the cultural things of a society as the kids grow. I remember calling a friend and saying, okay, tell me what honor roll is and why I should care. I don't actually know. It's not, tell me what matters because I don't want to miss something I should be celebrating just because I didn't know. And with every age they go through thinking, okay, what is homecoming? Could somebody give me a definition of what this thing is? And realizing that I'm always on the outside in, but they're not in the outside in. They're always translating it for me and interpreting it for me. And then me trying to work out, is this like, is this a big deal? Is this not a big deal? Is it a thing? Yeah. Ah, so interesting. Okay. So you have these two amazing kids. You're this successful speaker, author, writer, coach, podcaster, influencer, businesswoman. Did I miss anything? Are you like a secret? I don't know. Doctor? Target lover. <laughs> there you go. Target mm-hmm. lover. Thank you. Um, tell me about a moment in the journey mm-hmm. where you maybe took a wrong turn. You didn't experience immediate success, a moment that we would define as a pluck up. So something where you were like, yep, I really plucked that up. And tomorrow I'm going to have to figure out what we do about it. Yeah. Um, I would think back to six, seven years ago, because I think it was the point where I thought it was going to work out. It was everything I thought I wanted at the time, which is, which is weird in itself because now I look back, I'm like, Ooh, dodge the bullet there. But, um, (laughs) but at the time we were working for a church, it was a large church and it was a degree of autonomy to do writing and speaking and things as well. And all of that. And in my mind, it couldn't go wrong. We loved the staff. It was a fantastic staff team. I mean, it was just like you did life together. You hung out. It was like this idyllic kind of like community of people who believed the same thing and were trying out things and were experimenting and connecting with the community in all kinds of ways, serving refugees. I mean, it was just, it was wonderful for the things that we understood we wanted. But at the same time, there was this rumbling discontent within the community or with certain factions within the community that were not happy at all. And with the kind of infrastructure, the kind of bureaucracy of the church, which wasn't happy at all, because change is scary. And it was reaching a point of no return. And before that point of no return, there was a massive kind of meltdown of things. And things were manipulated and things said about us. And, and it was just this kind of, I don't understand what is happening. And it was this short, intense period where we had a choice to fight for the things that we built, knowing that it wasn't just about us. It was about the communities we were serving or where we had to walk away um, and how you'd fight for things and all of those pieces. And basically, to cut a very long story short, 12 of us resigned on one day. And it was seen as a victory in this kind of uprising of people who thought they'd been anyway. It was, and, it, and it was messy and it was volatile and you'd get these terrible emails late at night from people either who you knew or didn't know, saying these terrible things about you and asking these questions about you and all of that stuff. Because at that point, both my husband and I worked for the church. And so that meant two jobs were gone overnight. Wow. And people who you trusted, who who you realized were manipulating events. I mean, just, it was messy. It was really, really messy. Joe, that's very painful. And I think for a while I was just in shock, to be honest. I was just in shock it was just this kind of rumbling through the year and I got, I couldn't sleep. And then because I couldn't sleep, I um, stayed up later because I couldn't sleep. 
And I was, my mind was just racing. What about the kids? What are we going to do? What about our lives? What about, you know, and it was probably exacerbated by the fact, you know, this is not where I was born and raised and it had been challenging anyway, but here we were, we'd settled in a place that we loved and then it had all gone. And it's like, why are we doing this? Do I mean, do you just pack up and go home? But you've been gone from home for 10 years by now. When you leave a place and you move to another country or whatever, your parents are getting older. You're not going to get to every funeral. I mean, you all do family, but you friend, do you know what I mean? All these things and some devastating things have happened to some friends of ours and all kinds of things over the years. And it's like, you don't rationalize loss because you can't rationalize loss, but you accept certain things because you're not able to be there. But it kind of infuses meaning in the choices that you've made. And so when all those things fall apart, it's like, why did I make those choices? Mm. Why did I do that? Um, emotionally and mentally, my health is suffering. And I'm having anxiety attacks in the night, through the night, multiple times in the night. So I want to know, like, you're laying in bed, yeah. and your phone lights up, you roll over, you look at it. It's another really angry email. Yeah. You're reading the email. What is happening in your mind? Take us through the, like, yeah. the story you're telling yourself and how it spirals into that anxiety. Yeah, I think... I mean, I'm looking at it. I, I think what I would do is I'd automatically do the, I'm going to delete this. I'm going to okay. delete it. I'm not going to reply. But I've already seen it. Yeah. The thing is, I've already seen it. So Were you ever like made the decision to say, I'm going to delete it before I read it. But then when it came in, you like didn't have the self-control to do that? Well, sometimes it was in the subheading. So that's one thing. Sometimes you don't know who it is. So you're like, I don't know who this is. So what is this? I'm curious. And you're like, okay, it's too late. By then you're there. So it was quite hard to avoid. And then I think at that point, I, you delete it, but I've seen it. And it was like, sometimes it just felt like a punch. Sometimes it was, um, I can't describe it other than being slimed. Like people are throwing things at you and throwing things at you. And, I'm, and it was almost like, I can't deal with this. I haven't got time for this. But actually the fact that it was happening was enough. Other people would be like upset. Your friends would be upset because they'd find themselves defending you. My neighbor was upset because somebody in Target had, he found himself defending me to people, which tells you how often I was in Target, to be frank. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, we know her. And I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> um, I just felt this weight of responsibility, this weight of tiredness. I was just tired and I was just sad and I was just shocked and I just needed a minute because my kids are in school and I'm trying to keep their world together. Our team who are falling apart, you're trying to keep them together. And so some of it was just keep going, just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. And on one level it served a purpose because I kept going. It didn't serve a purpose because you can only keep going whilst your body's freaking out for so long. Yeah. And I think that for me, that was, it was this like long wreck of an experience that began probably around February we left in the spring and I kept going through the summer. And then by the fall, I was just like, I'm done. My, and I, I ended up, I had um, heart palpitations. So I had to go to urgent care. Oh. And it was at that point, it's like, okay, this is not pretty. This is not working. The only way you build your way through this is to unpack everything, yeah. including your coping mechanisms and rebuild. In the process of that, so you're getting all of this just criticism and questioning and accusations from your community. Mm -hmm. Was there any moment that you started questioning yourself and kind of like believing the criticism or wondering if people saw something that you didn't see or like what did that do to your belief about who you were as a person and a leader? It didn't make me question myself, but it questioned what I could do. 
because mm. it was so bizarre. Like you'd have people who were defending you one minute and then changing their mind and accusing you. I mean, it was just a very odd environment. But it made me question, am I too much? Am I just too much? Because the accusations weren't about anything I'd done. Because I hadn't done anything. They were about who you were. That's so much worse. Gosh, yeah. Agreed. What I can take on the chin when it's like, you didn't do this right, like you made this mistake, versus criticism that feels like it's just criticizing the core of who I am and how I think I'm created and something that I don't know if I'll ever be able to change can destroy me. Totally. In all kinds of ways. Because it's like, I can't, I can't fix that without just literally becoming somebody else. My hardest moments are when someone says that about something that I'm like, oh yeah, I, I know I'm like that. And I kind of like that about me. Like I didn't know that was so offensive. I didn't know that that was such a big problem. I didn't know that was so awful. That can just feel like it takes the rug out from underneath me and I can just spiral into like, what else don't I know about myself that's apparently so offensive to other people and like everybody knows it and everybody sees it and I'm like just like dopely going through life, you know, that can just, that can undo me in a, in a very different way than criticism about something. Yeah, that, you've done. Yeah. Because things are, the thing is, you know that you're not perfect. So of course you're going to have made mistakes. And it would be so much easier if it's like, oh my gosh, I did that. This person was affected. It's terrible. And I think partly because some of the accusations were like, oh, they're very different from us. And before you know, you're like, seriously, that we're going there. Do you know what I mean? A very different culture from us. And once things started taking a racial tinge or a cultural tinge, which was code for a racial tinge in some of those conversations, you're like, I can't do anything about this because I don't need to do anything about this but I do know I can't exist in this space if my very presence is a problem for you. So defeating. Because where do you go from there? There's nowhere to go. And I think because so many people are affected, that's the thing, when a community falls apart, it's years of relationships they had. I think I felt responsible because some people had close relationships with other people and they fell apart. I felt like, what is the point of doing this thing? Um, Yes, I may be gifted, but it seems to be I can't find a way to live that out. I think that was probably the thing. I can't find a way to be myself without it creating some kind of whirlwind of a world. And I can't do anything when somebody's threatened by me or all that kind of stuff. And in, in fairness, that's not even me projecting. That's some of the feedback and it's just complicated. So when you look back on that really painful season, like I feel like my heart is beating fast and I feel a little bit nauseous right now. <laughs> like thinking about the weight of that, mm-hmm. you could go back. Is there something that you would have changed, done differently, done sooner? Is there um, something you would have been able to tell yourself or engage in a different way that you think could have made the outcome less painful you know what i don't know i mean i could have left quicker but honestly i think there are things i would have liked to have done differently but i'm kind of glad i didn't so for example i didn't defend myself and i wanted to and i think it added to a level of the stress because i didn't do but a couple of years later when everything came to light of what was happening the fact that we hadn't said anything was actually very vindicating I'm so deeply grateful that you shared this story with me. Us. See, I'm selfish. I'm like, no, it's really just, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. we're going to record it for a podcast so other people can see it. But really, 
this is for me. Um, I imagine that there are people that are going to listen to this that are going to feel a lot of resonance with this, that they're going to identify maybe they're in the midst of this right now. And I think a really important and interesting question is, how do you know when to quit? How do you know when to say, this isn't working, I have to walk away? And how do you know when to say, like, I'm going to stay and I'm going to pivot and I'm going to stay curious and I'm going to help move this organization in the right direction or whatever it is? How do you know when to quit? You know, I think what made this my kind of kind of pluck up moment was thinking, how much rejection can you take? Mm. How much betrayal can you take? How much deception can you take? Is what it's doing to your mental and emotional health worth it? Is what it's doing to your physical well-being, because we often don't pay enough attention to that, worth it? And what is this costing your integrity? We knew pretty early on it was untenable. So then the next thing is, how do we leave in a way that is healthy for us, for the things we care about, mm. and actually negotiate a severance? Do you know what I mean? yeah. or, or whatever you need to do. Be strategic about it. Yeah. yeah. What do you need yeah. to do? We just had to work out what was the healthiest thing. And sometimes, the hard thing about this is that sometimes there is no good answer. You stay, it's painful. You go, it's painful you stay, it's hard. You go, it's hard. If only it was as binary as if you do this, this will be better. If you do this, this will be better. And I think that's probably one of the things I learned growing up. Sometimes it all sucks. But if the whole world around you is burning, what do you have to do to be able to survive heal, move forward. Oh, yeah, that's so good. And it's so real. It reminds me of a quote that talked about the difference between the pain of a rotting tooth and the pain of having the tooth pulled out. They're both deeply painful. Yeah, They are different types of pain. And in yeah. one pain, it's deeply painful, but there's hope that they'll be healing on the other side. Mm-hmm. The other is a type of pain that just feels powerless. Like I know it's only going to get worse and I can try to ignore it. It's easy if you're like, well, this would be painless and it would be good and it would be right and it would be joyful and this would be painful and horrible. Okay, that's a pretty easy decision. But when you're faced with two different types of pain, I think being able to to have the nuance to see the type of pain that you're choosing between, yeah, this is a hard question to answer and it's hard to answer it in a way that I feel like isn't, I don't know, kind of fluffy. But I feel like you calling us to integrity and to just the simple question of like, can I move forward? Can I be in alignment? And can I be here with integrity is actually a remarkably simple and powerful answer to that question. How would you encourage anyone who's listening to this podcast and they're like, you know what? Joe's out there. She's living into her purpose. She's like making this beautiful impact and she clearly knows her passion and her purpose. I want to build a life like that and I'm feeling stuck. How do I get unstuck? What would you encourage me with? I think I would encourage you to think through what got you stuck. Sometimes it is the depths of rejection, the depths of betrayal, the depths of loss and the fear that surrounds all of those things when you're in the middle of it. And I would say it's okay to feel your feelings, first of all. I would say see a therapist if you can and get some support because you don't have to do this alone. I don't know that I got myself unstuck. I think a community of people got me unstuck. 
Because here's the thing, I had no capacity to be creative. I was so burned up and burned out by what had happened. And then um, all the things I was involved in just had a bad year. And so I needed, I needed to talk it out with someone. I needed to, I had to take care of me. I, there I was serving this and dreaming of this and working for this and all these other things. And I was falling apart. And rather than thinking, well, if I don't stay on it, I'm going to miss my moment. I'm going to miss me. <laughs> I was miss, I'm going to miss my body. I'm going to miss my very existence if I don't um, attend to this. So I would say, if you're completely stuck, then I think there is a sense of what's the emotional, mental, physical, spiritual things you need to do to reboot. Because you will find, you may find the gold in the dark, the diamonds in the dark, if you give yourself a chance to. But um, it's too hard to do that when you're completely overwhelmed. So who's your support system? And it was friends who I wept with and talked with and raged with. It was the simplicity of hanging with my kids sometimes and us going for walks and playing. It was the therapist. It was the doctor. It was long walks and allowing myself to say, this is where I am. I don't think I'm going to be here forever, but this is where I am today. Oh, that is so good. That's really, really good and powerful. And thank you for sharing. Thank you for leading. It's just so, there are so many leaders and people who are on the other side of the struggle, you know, that like don't want to go, don't want to share those moments where they question themselves and where they deeply struggle. I truly just believe that when we do that, it's just, I mean, what better gift can you give to people? And I think we need to give ourselves a break on some of this. You know what I mean? Because horrible things happen. Yeah. Not to be too shamelessly pluggy, but I'm just saying, everybody, if this is the type of honesty (laughs) and leadership and self-reflection and truth-telling that you want in your life as you are building your own life of purpose and passion and impact, whatever that looks like to you. If you're a mama, if you're an entrepreneur, if you are an artist, a leader, a speaker, a writer, I really encourage you to read Joe's books. Her most recent one is called Ready to Rise. And then she also has a coaching platform. Yes, it is. And I focused it specifically for women. At the, I do coach in, in all kinds of contexts, but I felt at this moment there were a, a whole load of women who were under-resourced. Do you know what I mean? Lots of dreams that got stuck bit under the rubble of people's broken stories and just needed some extra investment. So yeah, it's a digital platform. We do something every week. It's either it's an interview with a guest mentor. It's a kind of what I call the village meeting where you kind of connect with other people like you and process stuff through to webinars with skills, through to coaching and tools and an online community to connect. And, and so, yeah, and I want it to be accessible because I hate the idea of building a world where only who, those who feel they can financially afford it or can afford the time to go to an event get the opportunity and the development that propels them forward in their business, in their nonprofit, in their church, in their ministry, in their life. Because that's a terrible reason to not be able to lead. Joe, thank you so much for being on here, for hanging out with me and other people got to listen in too. (laughs) (laughs) You are a bold and courageous and also deeply empathetic and wise leader. And you are a voice that I continue to look at and things happen in the world and I find myself going I wonder what Joe thinks I'm so so grateful for you and for the voice that you have Um, and thank you for spending your time with us thank you it's good to be with you luck yeah (laughs) (laughs) 
My gosh. I'm not sure about you, but listening to Joe recount that painful season in her career honestly had my heart racing. But I am so grateful and in awe of the way that she moved through it, mainly in the form of having the courage to slow down, to ask for help, and to prioritize her own health through doctors, therapists, her community, and creating more space for herself. What I love most, I think, is that if you know Joe, which you all do a little bit now, you know that she has this incredible ability to lead others and to teach and coach others to become better leaders of themselves and their communities. And I think it's in part because of this hard-won resilience and perspective that she's gained throughout her whole life and specifically these really challenging experiences. What a gift she is and what a gift of vulnerability and honesty that she shared with us. I really hope that you feel encouraged, inspired, and a little less alone. This podcast was made possible in part by our sponsor, Baker Publishing Group, and my amazing producers, Human Group Media. For updates and announcements about the show, you can also visit lizbohannon.co or follow us on Instagram at lizbohannon or at sincerelyhuman or human underscore media on Twitter. All right, that's all, guys. We'll catch you in the next episode. And until then, keep plucking along. All right, y'all. That's it for today's episode. I hope you feel as encouraged and challenged and inspired as I do. We'll see you again next week for the third listener favorite. And until then,